The Pace Line is produced by The Cycling Independent, the only cycling media completely free of commercial influence. We are community-supported and dedicated to the whole of cycling. As our tagline says, if you ride bikes, you're one of us. From the Cycling Independent, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and with me is my co-host, Patria Vandermark. Each week, we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. How are you doing, Patria? I'm doing great. We've had a really exciting weekend of cyclocross racing. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about snow. I heard that snow I finally... am going to talk about <laughs> snow today, <laughs> okay. and I've got a whole poll about snow. <laughs> okay. So I wanted to just talk a little bit about just the cyclocross races, yeah. the, the uh, world championships happened this weekend. Yeah. And that's that's huge. I'm hoping more people are watching cyclocross now more than ever because there's not a lot going on. And it's interesting mm. to be happening this late in the season or early, however you want to look at the calendar at this <laughs> yeah. point. But there have been some really cool rivalries going on in both the men's and women's fields that it just kept us all on, on the tips of our toes. And I, I've been watching every race I can. Um, I hope you've had a chance to take a look at some of the races. No, my, my schedule just hasn't really allowed for it. And uh, it's a bummer because man, if there's something that is really fun to watch on TV, it's cyclocross racing. Yes, yeah. it is. It is. And especially now the levels of both fields are really high. The U23 races were very exciting to watch again, both, Men and women are, are just at top form. The The course was very interesting for this particular race yeah. where they had a 21% flyover. So that's 21% going up, really maxing out the riders on the way up. And then on the way down, the course was dumping the racer straight into a huge sand pit, which was basically the beach in front of the ocean. And this was in uh, this was in West Belgium that this was taking place. Wow. So you're seeing the waves in the background and riders literally riding through the waves in order to find the hardest sand, which is the mm -hmm. fastest line Yep. in order to get through the sand. So there's deep sand, big ruts, you know, racers are getting tossed off their bikes left and right. You could definitely see who trains in the sand and who doesn't. Uh, but but really just exceptionally good racing. And in the time of COVID where there's not a lot going on, they're clearly doing it well. They're able to keep it safe. Obviously, there aren't spectators aside from the press out there. They've got cutouts <laughs> of people. <laughs> so this is the people that you see are these cardboard cutouts of people. Uh, but as a viewer at home, it's it's really interesting because especially with commentary, you can see who the racers are. You see them up close. You get to know who's out there. Uh, and that's just that's been great to watch. Um, Clara Hansinger from the U.S. Mm -hmm. has had a breakout season. She's she did phenomenally well this season. Not only did she have a believe two or three podium finishes at world cup races she finished fourth in wow. the pro race so that was that was great to see for the u.s and obviously belgium and the netherlands are just dominating everything's blue and orange out there 
<laughs> but some really, really neat performances from from some others uh, from from random com- countries. Hungary, a woman in, in the Hungarian field, New 23, mm. did great. Really neat to see. So anyway, you could definitely go back. I believe it's on YouTube, on the Internet. Um, you can watch repeats, replays of these races because they're they're worth catching. Excellent. Yeah, I'm, I might like subject my boys to that this evening at dinner. That's a great idea. I think this is a really good way to get your family into cycling. If if you're into cycling, maybe your family isn't. It is exciting. And you get to show so much about the bike and riders and how they're interacting with their bikes. It, it, it's great. It's great. Very cool. So, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, if if anything, if any form of bike racing is going to get my boy's attention, I would think that it would be cyclocross. Um, mm-hmm. well, maybe downhill mountain biking. I could see my, yeah, yeah, I could see that. That's really exciting to watch too. <laughs> I think more people can put themselves in the context of cycle cross racing. Like when you watch it, say, Hey, I could do that. Why not? Well, you <laughs> could, seems, you can yeah. sign up for a race and do it. Downhill race is so much more challenging to like go out and just do one. Yeah. But little Whereas boys who are invincible, you know, and immortal, uh, I, you know, <laughs> Good point. Good point. I, got, I got to be careful what I steer them into. <laughs> Downhill racing, there's no such thing. <laughs> All right. So back to your local environs and snow. Did yes. we do the Jay Peterberry Fat Pursuit Challenge? That I, I did. I did it this awesome. past Friday. 60 kilometers of snow riding. Wow. Wow. I, I've, I've got lots to talk about on, on my poll. Would there be anything you would like to add Prior no, to no, us jumping into, into my into poll. It. I really want to hear okay. about this. Yeah. Uh, this is this was great. Obviously, I was looking forward to doing this all month since I learned about this originally. Rebecca Rush had mentioned something about it mm-hmm. on so this, her social media. That's how I originally heard about it. So clearly here I've been talking about taking this on and really excited to do it and nervous for that matter. So the, oh, the quick recap, it's a 60 kilometer or 200 kilometer challenge. I decided to do the 60 kilometer version. <laughs> it needed to be on a fat bike on 80% or more snow. Mm. And then and then aside from that, the, the rules were very loose. Jay Peterberry was trying to encourage riders to learn, to grow, to push themselves. So he didn't want to have it too, too rule ridden. Um. This challenge demonstrated the value of having a challenge, I felt. It, it gave me something to look forward to all of January, and I really had to do it before January was over. Mm-hmm. That forced it to happen. It made me take the day off from work, and I had a very valid excuse to do something that seemed a bit extreme. <laughs> the air temperature was 8 degrees Fahrenheit at oh. the start. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> this oh. is cold for Massachusetts. It does not usually get that cold here. And in many ways, I considered that fortunate because it was a challenge. The whole point of this was for it to be a challenge. So, OK, we have a challenge now. <laughs> and then it went up to a balmy 15 degrees midday. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> then it dropped back down again. And from what I can tell between the strong winds and lack of sun, the low of the ride was right around minus seven. Wait, that was actual ambient temperature, just wind chill. It was that would be the feels like temperature. Okay. Like if you look on your phone and your phone tells you this is the number, but this is what it actually feels like. 
Oh. It was in the minus seven range. <laughs> and I was listening to my Garmin. It, it's hard to tell what the right temperature is. I would look on my phone. It would tell me it was like eight degrees more than my Garmin was telling me. But the phone temperature is from like some point in a sunny parking lot you know, in the middle of town. <laughs> so it's it's always kind of tricky to tell. So I, I, I prefer to trust the Garmin. <laughs> It's cold. Yes, it, it definitely was cold out there. I started from home and I used home as home base uh-huh. in order to keep things safe because I was going to be challenging myself and because we luckily had snow at home. I didn't think that was going to be possible just due to the fact that we hadn't had snow this month, but but we were lucky. And so I was able to to keep it close to home. And, and then I didn't need a support crew or anything else like that. I started writing at 10.15 a.m. And okay. I finished it just after 9 p.m. Oh, oh. <laughs> so wow. well after dark, it was a total ride time of seven and a half hours total that on the bike. Uh-huh. Total time outside was 10 hours. OK. I, I took one break at sunset to eat, to replenish my water and grab a battery for my lights. That was when I went home and and did these things inside in the warmth and comfort of my home. For, you know, for for having that warmth and comfort of home, you know, I I thought that was that was valid. Anyone who would be out there would probably stop at a restaurant or a gas station or something and refueling water. Some people would melt snow to create water. That will be the next challenge for me. But Mm. I, I. didn't think I was there and definitely doing it close to home. The water around here is disgusting. I mean, it, like the snow is it, there's too many dogs. Like I wouldn't know. Roger I wouldn't <laughs> feel safe drinking any snow around here. So I would want to be more in the middle of nowhere in order to, to trust, to trust the snow. And that's a whole nother level of being able to create water from snow. It's a lot more fuel and everything else. So anyway, yes, that's, that's the next challenge. <laughs> um, I stopped just just before well, it was right during sunset that I had stopped, which I felt like was the most challenging time of the day, because mm-hmm. that's the time when, OK, I've already been out riding all day. I had a very satisfying <laughs> ride yeah. up to that point. Now I'm stepping inside the warmth of my home. I'm eating warm food. I had a cup of hot cocoa and then I had to convince myself to go outside at night. It was then pitched black right when i went back outside so that was part of the challenge to me too i did that on purpose because i knew that would be the hardest for me to go out <laughs> just so had to go. make it harder for yourself I had to make it <laughs> had to make it harder but that was my my real goal of this whole thing was to become a confident winter cyclist uh-huh is prior to this and i think most people are in the similar boat you'll go out for a two-hour ride in the winter no, two, maybe three hours max. That's not pushing yourself to staying out all day. You, you, you can get away with murder with your setup. You can have all the wrong clothes. You can do a lot of wrong things and survive for two hours. Yeah. You, if you do things wrong, you're not going to survive five plus hours out there. So I've talked, I've definitely mentioned this a lot before. I'm going to say it again. I'm cold. I am a cold person. I get cold faster than most people. And I have the Raynaud's syndrome in my hands and my toes. Mm -hmm. If you experience it and 30% of you out there listening to this show have Raynaud's, that's when your fingers turn or fingers or toes will turn ghostly white instantly. 
they'll go cold and it will look like blood flow to that finger or toe is has just been turned off, which is essentially what happens Mm -hmm. when your fingers are that white. There is no blood flow in your finger. And now you just you got cold and it's very hard to bring that finger or toe back to life. (laughs) So Mm. the tips I'm sharing with you today are beyond the obvious. There are plenty of people out there suggesting how to dress and how to stay comfortable, how to equip yourself for winter riding. So there's a lot of that stuff out there. I am going to take you through the extra stuff, the the big winter things that I thought about, things that I experienced that may help you take it to the next level or even just help give you that much confidence to go out for two hours, which could be also be helpful. So here, here are the, uh, here's what I've got. And I would love to hear from you listeners out there on your thoughts, what works for you. One of the really fun things about winter riding is there's so much to learn. There's so much like cool tips and tricks other people use and incorporating all those just makes riding better and better. Number one, mind over matter. This is as much mental as it is physical. You want to start with a warm bike and warm shoes, dress inside where it's warm, eat warm food for breakfast, prepare calmly in advance and make sure your bike is ready for you and have all of your gear together. Simple preparation is going to help your mind be good with what it is you're about to take on. Take extras of everything. Weight is irrelevant to the elements. In other words, Adding an extra pound in order to give yourself more food, more water, more fuel for building a fire is far more important than trying to save that pound off the weight of your bike. Share your plan with a loved one. Use a tracking device that allows you to send a message to your loved one to come find you. And you don't necessarily need to have search and rescue come to you if you need a hand. Your fingers just might go cold and you might realize you can't get them back. You're not going to call the federal authorities, but you really are going to need to be picked up. So make sure you have some plan in place. And if you think you're looking to test yourself to try just to prove yourself somewhat how I took this on, I really think the 60 kilometer distance, which is about 37 miles, is a good goal distance. It pushes you. It makes you be outside for a variety of temperatures through the day as the temperatures go up and down and the sunlight also is brighter it's less bright you have all of these various conditions in in a day uh, without killing you that's what the 200k version is for <laughs> potentially killing <laughs> you Got it. which i will tell you after doing the 60k i cannot wait to do 200k <laughs> <laughs> I'm really excited to take on more. So at the end of the day, all, all it made me want to do was more. Right, number two, choose your route wisely. And in that, this is simple. Be sure to have a climb nearby at the start and where you're likely to be taking a rest. Climbs basically allow your body to do the heating. Mm-hmm. And that really helps just to warm everything up. There was a, a water tower climb not far away. And I found that I hit that climb three times during the day. They were the three times that I was potentially chilly. 
and wanted to warm up. And that's all I needed. One little climb. It wasn't that far. Wasn't that hard. It was just enough to stoke the fire inside. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Yeah. And I know there's plenty of other suggestions where it comes to root. Just not being out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> like maybe first time, try it some something close to home. Or even just go out on a cold day. You don't need to have snow under your tires. You're still going to be riding slow. It's still going to take all day. But being near civilization is, is not a bad thing for the first time. Mm. Number three. Do not rely on your cell phone for anything. A cell phone might last for a grand total of 15 seconds on a cold day. The cold shuts down a fully charged phone and it's hard to get it back. I discovered this when I got a phone call from a colleague. I picked it up, had a short, probably 30 second conversation, of course, explaining I'm outside in very, very cold temperatures and I can't have a long conversation. And my phone was on for maybe another 15 seconds after that. And then it just went dark. It was it was off. Wow. I have had this happen multiple times in the past, and I always forget that it can happen until it does. <laughs> and then how do how do you get it warm enough? I put it in my lobster claw, which had a chemical hand warmer in it, and I put that in my pogey. And oh. the phone was still pretty cold. That wow. didn't help the way I thought it was going to or the way I was hoping it was going to. So I ended up putting the phone between my jersey and my base layer. And then because everything's pretty tight in there, mm-hmm. I wasn't going to lose the phone. So it, it it was fine. So I got it back. But then it tells me that the battery is at 1%, which wasn't true. It's just that the brain of the phone is so confused at that point. So now I don't know how much battery I have left. <laughs> and and it, it's on. That's good. It's working. I was able to take some photos and that sort of thing. But if that had been the thing I needed to call for help which is usually what people think they're using to call for help. Mm-hmm. That's it, not it. It's also helpful to have um, a headset because you can use the headset and keep the phone tucked away in your jacket. Oh, so uh-huh. that will extend the time that you have on your phone. And there's always the something bad could happen to your phone. So it's just good to have a tracking system or something that will work without, without your cell phone technology. <laughs> Number four. This this bit of advice is everywhere. I I took more note of it when Jay Peterberry's wife, Tracy Peterberry, mentioned how important chemical hand warmers are to her. And and that definitely made me perk up because uh, she's joined him. My understanding is on some Iditarod rides. Some and she's done a lot of winter cycling herself. Yeah. And she swears by the chemical hand warmers. So. Definitely. I I definitely agree. I took more because she had suggested it. And that's I'm just going to reiterate that advice. Take more than you think you could need um, and and use them. I had unwrapped my first one before I left the house in the morning. Give it 15 minutes to warm up. So so they were hot and they stay warm for about four to five hours as long as they have proper oxygen flow to them. So I took them out of the package, put them in the lobster claws, put the lobster claws in my pogies. So I figured if I needed them, they were going to be ready. And I did. I did need them. And they were ready. And that was really nice to have. Planning ahead on heat is important. And so what I discovered was later they got cold and I didn't have the next set already ready. 
And I should have. I mm. should have thought about about that or even set an alarm or something. Huh. But I can't do that on my phone. <laughs> going to have to figure this one out. <laughs> so but um, but planning ahead and thinking ahead to what's coming next is really important during the day. Mm-hmm. What time of the day is it? What's happening? Where are you? What do you feel? Just doing everything in advance. Number five, unless it's raining, your outer layer should be able to breathe to allow your sweat to evaporate. Mm. I'm definitely talking about jacket here. Uh, head, head as well. Your head and your and your torso are the two things that sweat that you could have problems with. And of course, you're always going to hear about people having problems with sweat in the winter. Sweat is a problem. Yes, you're you're working. You're going to sweat. Overheating is a bigger problem because when you overheat, then you underheat and and then you freeze to death. I don't think overheating is such a concern. I don't think sweat is such a concern as long as your sweat can escape somehow. So your jacket is breathable, that some of that sweat can escape. And as long as the layer next to your body is wool, then you will stay warm, even though it's wet. And that, yeah, it's it doesn't feel good to feel like you're bathing in sweat, but you're also not freezing to death. Yeah. That's, that is the number one place, though, to test yourself with these short rides. Try it. Try overexerting and sweating a bunch and then see how your body does with that and see how your jackets deal with it. But I, I would definitely discourage use of, of an outer shell that's that's not breathable because mm-hmm. it's just it's hard to get that that sweat out. And even if your jacket can breathe like, yeah, pit zips are super helpful um, and you might need to use a system like that. But like the jacket I was using was fine and it was really windy and I didn't feel the wind because it was still heavy enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The jacket that I wear, unfortunately, is no longer being made. It has a fluffy, furry inside, uh-huh. and that fluff and fur it creates space, and space is warm. Yep. So that's, I mean, and that's the point. It's not actually that that's warm. It's just now you have that air volume inside. So you could duplicate that with like a nice shirt that has fluff or some kind of volume. But play around, play around with that with that layer, and then and again also with your head. I was wearing a helmet with a shell on it just to keep the heat in. And my head was overheating. I was definitely overheating. Wow. But at no point did I freeze because I was overheating. Mm -hmm. And I definitely, uh, towards the end of the day, I I had miscalculated my mileage. And I thought I had five miles less to go than I did. So all of a sudden, it's after six o'clock and I realize I have to do five more miles. So I picked up the pace. Uh Fairly high. And I was sweating and I was way too warm and I was wondering what kind of payback I was going to have from being too warm. Mm-hmm. And it was OK. I had I'd slowed down after that and I was definitely cooler, but I didn't get too cold. It just felt like everything was breathing all right. So I, I didn't have to pay a high price for having that extra sweat. It was it was a good test. We'll call it testing. <laughs> <laughs> but that was that was tricky psychologically. Oh no, another five miles. I don't know if I can do this. Mm. Um, so number number six, plan for everything to take much longer than you expect it to. There's the obvious. Soft snow is incredibly hard to get through. It's mm-hmm. slow going. I was lucky to have hard snow. 
at very packed conditions. There are many more walkers out on the trails. So the snow was just in optimal condition. I got lucky there. So it was mm. it. It was faster to ride. My average was five miles per hour. And I was proud of that. That oh. sounded fast to me. And it, it, that is fast. If it's if it's fresh snow, you're not averaging five. Um, the fastest rate riders who did the 200 K Peterberry challenge, uh, the fat bike, uh, fat pursuit. I think they average something like six and a half miles an hour. That oh just sounds so fast. I mean, we're talking exceptionally good cyclists are averaging six and a half. So expect to go slow. And what kind of route are you on? Are you on single track or are you on snowmobile trails? You don't really know what it's going to be like until you're on it during the day. If it gets warm, it's going to be softer. You're going to slow down when that happens. The colder it is, the faster it is. So I was pretty happy. I was like, yeah, it's cold. The snow is great. It's fast. Oh. <laughs> that helps pay back for that. But um, but then eating and drinking take a long time. It, it takes a while to pull the the tube out from I was wearing a hydration pack under my jacket. That was great. Kept my water really warm. I think that's that's the only way to do it if you're trying to keep your water warm all day is the water has to be under your jacket. It has to be near your skin. But that takes a while. You have to get it out. You have to take your hands out of out of your pogies to to reach the thing. You have to zip and unzip. This is all difficult to deal with. Mm. All right. That takes us right to number seven, which is use the warmest, largest pogies you can find. These are useful as little warm storage areas for food and whatever you need to keep warm-ish. But it's not warm. A lot of people think that the pogey is just going to be an oven in there. Well, if your hands aren't don't run particularly warm, you're not going to have a ton of heat in there. It's just not freezing cold. Uh, but that is, it really helps with, with food because your food will become ice, so you can't even chew into it if it's too cold. You can keep that in there. Um, you can keep those chemical hand warmers in there to help have a little bit more heat. And there's a lot of space in the in the pogies. They're, they're really nice. They're not scary. I think a lot of people think that they're frightful, that you put your hands in something and then if you fall, you're not going to be able to get your hand out. I, I wouldn't worry about that. It's it's so nice to have that that warmth. And I oh. ended up in, with my setup. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask. Um, I mean, not having used them. So you put food in there and it's not going to come sliding out or bouncing out? There's no opening. If if yeah, oh, there's so no once your once your hands are in there, it's sealed up essentially. Yeah, and the way you put your hands in, they're sort of tilted up, uh -huh. so the where your okay. food is is by your handlebar. Okay, so yeah, there there wouldn't be any way for things to fall out unless you really did a number of, like flying down a hill, you know, <laughs> sort of. Uh, yeah, you your 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 things will be fine in your boogies. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yes, some boogies even have little pockets inside of them too to allow for that total totally worth it there are lots of really cozy warm ones i use the cobra fist 45 north pogies but i've seen lots of them that look really big and fluffy and warm and i'm sure the bigger and fluffier the warmer <laughs> and, and i ended up with my setup i used lobster claws in the pogies mm -hmm. and with the chemical hand warmers in the lobster claws and that was the setup that i needed Mostly because you do have to take your hands out of the pogies a lot. Like if you could just keep your hands in the pogies all day long, I don't think you would need the chemical, chemical hand warmers. There's a lot you wouldn't need, mm. but 
you're forever taking your hands out in order to grab the water, to grab food, to take a picture, um, to use, uh, to have a nature break. So the, there's just so many reasons your hands are out. All it takes is two seconds of your gloves being out of those pogies and you're cold again. Wow. Or maybe not cold, but but you're introducing cold air to your system. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 7B, invest in good boots. Inve- invest in very big, warm boots. And I've seen a lot of people say, hey, how can I get away from well, how can I get away with keeping my feet warm without big boots? I don't think there's any good I don't I don't think there's any way of doing it without just simply investing in really good boots. Uh, and there's lots of hacks and tips and tricks and that sort of thing if you're going to do the two hour ride. But if you're going to do a big ride, just get the boots. They're going to last a really long time, like a really, really long time. It's not like you walk on these boots. You're riding your bike with the boots. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about a multiple year investment in your in your happy feet. So it that is that's really worth it. Hmm. Um, and then also you might as well take a pair of extra socks just in case you get you get your boots wet if you have a river crossing or something i always have a pair of waterproof socks on me because you would want to protect your feet from the wet of your boot and waterproof socks would do that number eight not to leave this towards the end of the list but your source of heat and propulsion is your body Of course, we all know this is important, but I'm just going to say it again. Eating and drinking is so important and you need to eat and drink a lot more than you can imagine because you're burning calories so fast. It's so many more than you can possibly imagine. And it's hard. You're going to think you're eating and drinking a lot. And at the end of the day, you've not really had much at all. I rode with two liters of water on my back and I had lots of cliff bars with me. I could not believe how much I was fueled by the hot chocolate that I had at the water boil test. After drinking just a little bit of that, I I was just going so much faster. And I realized I was in a big hole. Mm. It's too easy to not eat and drink enough. So you have to be on it, like start set your timer on your GPS computer, some sort of something to remind you eat and drink constantly is really important. And when your body has all that fuel in it, it's going to be able to stay warm. That And that all works together. And you're also going to be able to ride the distance. At the end of 37 miles on snow, my legs were gone. Absolutely trashed. Oh. I had nothing left. <laughs> it was, it felt like such a long ride. And yes, it was. I mean, by hours, it was a long ride. By distance, what's a 37 mile ride? Like, that's nothing. <laughs> right. Right. That's really not that far. Well, it's not that far, but it's it's a lot of effort you have to put out. Well, that's why I'm always telling people, you know, don't count your mileage, count your hours. Yeah. Body knows right. time. Yes, exactly. Right. Miles or who knows what anymore. And I, I've said it lots before. I'll say it again. It's really neat to be able to take those numbers that we all knew to be true, like your average mile per hour and that sort of thing. And just <laughs> throw it out the window. Like I was proud at five miles per hour. I was like, oh, wow, that's great. Really? <laughs> What's wrong with me? <laughs> All right. In the very last. <laughs> There's a lot wrong with me. Okay. We got. <laughs> um, and then the very last one is being able to boil water. This was part of the fat pursuit challenge. 
And I appreciate that Jay Peterberry put this in the the test and the, the, the challenge because being able to boil water and heat things is very important. You've got to be able to turn snow into water if you need it. This helps you continue on. And of course, eating something warm, drinking something warm changes everything. It helps with the psychological aspect of the long day to know that you can do that. Um, it, it just and it makes everything feel better. I tested out the utility flame gel. I mentioned this a few shows ago. Yeah, that this was something I've done successfully for bike packing during the summer. It was it was interesting. I stopped at the top of a hill where it was really windy. So I chose the worst possible place to do my water boil test <laughs> in order to test the system. Okay. I, I did that on purpose. I could have gone into the woods much lower down. But what if you're in the position where it's windy everywhere? What happens? The wind is exceptionally bad for your heat. It mm -hmm. yeah. blew through everything. I had a windscreen, nice little aluminum windscreen. The wind got right through there. And I was able to get my water nice and warm. I was able to make hot cocoa, but it took a while and it it did not boil like it wasn't rolling, boiling. It wow. was steaming. It was warm enough, but still it wasn't where I really would want it to be if I was in the wilderness of Minnesota, for instance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that was that was a good test. I really like the utility flame gel packs. As backup, I will definitely always have those on me. They're very, they're safe. They're really easy to light. If you have no dexterity, like lighting a match with a lobster claw is not hard. So I could get heat and I could get a flame and get the whole thing together with hands and gloves. Now, what I will add to the setup, because it's clear that this is the best, probably the best choice is the MSR Whisper Light system. I'm going to add that. So that gives close to like two hours of heat for like a 20 ounce canister. That sounds like that's weight well spent and in a lot more time that that will buy a person out in the middle of who knows where. Hmm. So that with the backup of the utility flame, I think that's that's the right answer there for me for the future for the 200k which like i said i had such a good time i learned a lot about myself the moon was one day past full so being out there in the dark woods with the what looked like a full moon it was it was wonderful it, it was really cool to feel like i can't believe i'm in the middle of trails in the night by myself doing this there was a lot there that i haven't done before so that's that's the the summary and i hope People take something good away from this. And, and just really the most important thing is to try it for yourself. Prove it to yourself. Is I was not convinced I could do it. And I'm really glad to say, yes, I could do it. And now I'm not scared. I want to do more. <laughs> that, was, that was good stuff. That was really, really good stuff. Wow. Okay. So now I got to ask you a question first. So right now here in Northern California, where I am, Sunset is about 5.30 p.m. What time is sunset where you are currently? According to my Garmin, which I had it set to tell me what time sunset was, because that was important. I think it was uh, like 4.57. Okay. Something like that. So, yeah, pretty, pretty early in the day. Yeah. So once you got back out after your visit home, you still had, what, three, three-ish hours of darkness 
Right. Um, that's yep, plenty of dark. That's a long time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, okay. Another question, because I'm curious. <clears throat> how much, uh, you know, during the summer when you're out riding, how much do you fuel per hour? Like a cliff bar per hour? Um, two, mm-hmm. how much will you go through in a typical summer ride? I hate to say it. I, I don't do this well enough at all. I mm-hmm. would say a cliff bar every couple hours. I'd always eat a good breakfast. I'll always go out well fed Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then try to drink a bottle an hour. I'm better at drinking than I am at eating when I'm I'm out. Now, when uh, in the cold, how much are you increasing what you eat by? How how many more calories are you getting? Are you doubling that? I would think so. Okay, And this is this is part of the challenge for me and my personal struggle with getting the the calories down. I didn't eat much at all during this challenge. Mm. Definitely did not get the calories I needed. I uh, had a cliff gel shot probably two hours in, um, which tasted good. It was the espresso flavor, which (laughs) helped (laughs) back to the psychology. I had a cliff bar as well. And then what did I have? I mean, my, my first real meal was, was dinner at sunset. Mm. where I had some leftovers from the night before. And I'm not sure how many calories that was because it was just like dinner from the night before. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. tasted so good. I heated it up over the stove in my house. <laughs> and I'm like, this is, this is not cheating. This is entirely okay. <laughs> but it wasn't enough calories. I mean, uh-huh. Garmin tells me I burned 3000 calories. I would bet that's on the low side. Oh yeah. Yeah. For the number of hours you're out there, that doesn't yeah. seem. <laughs> not yeah. possible. I think yeah. my burn rate, like I'm, a, I'm typically like a 1700 calorie a day person if I'm not doing anything. Mm-hmm. Like I do have, a, I, I mean, yeah, I think I don't burn the, the average 2000 calories that a typical person would. There is no average. I mean, from, from well, my experience in looking into that. Yeah. Everything I've learned, there's no average. There's a range. Mm-hmm. People are gray. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, I just, yeah. Kudos to you. This just doesn't even sound like something that would be all that much fun to me, but, um, you know, uh, it was, it was freeing. It was freeing. (laughs) That's terrific. I I think being able to be Mm self-sufficient and now what I'm proving to be like, well, I think I could do anything now. And that's, that's cool. Yeah. So now, now there's not a day, day too cold. There's not a day to anything where one can't go out and have a great ride. And then, of course, riding on a fat bike, it's just fun. You're out there. I couldn't use my phone. I couldn't respond to work emails. There's some of that, too, where (laughs) this is what you're doing today. You're worrying about your survival. Mm -hmm. And and that's that's a good thing. And I I did a lot of um, video footage. So I had a camera on the bike where I took a lot of videos. That was neat because it made it feel bigger than myself. Like I was talking to the camera Maybe that's to keep myself sane, but also to include others in the process and uh-huh. and, and the experience. So I'll be posting those as I have a chance oh, to, awesome. to share those. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm sure we'll get links up to those uh, once once you have them posted. Yeah, I will. Yeah. Very cool. Alrighty. Well, we're going to take a break and we will be back in just a minute. The Pace Line is brought to you by the Cycling Independent. We are the only online cycling publication that's entirely reader-supported with absolutely no advertiser, sponsor, 
or investor commitments influencing our editorial. We don't have a sales team or middle management. It's just the three founders and a collection of talented and committed contributors who independently produce our content. To maintain our commitment to honest, reader-focused editorial with the best writers in the business, we need your help. Every dollar that comes in goes directly toward creating the content you see. A subscription is cheap, easy, and it goes a heck of a long way. Just go to cyclingindependent.com, click on Support TCI, and choose your level. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're back with the pace line, the podcast on two wheels. Time for my poll. So I've got a listener question this week about mountain bike suspension. Uh, more specifically, rear suspension systems. Uh, listener Jeff sent me a note asking what suspension systems I like best. Uh, before I get to my faves, I'm just going to go ahead and get a couple things out of the way uh, right now. Even the worst suspension system out there today is better than what was available in the late 1990s and early 2000s. I can't begin to stress how much things have changed. Um, I remember riding bikes where the designs were such that they bobbed in perfect time to each pedal stroke. As my <laughs> leg was going down, my butt was going down too. Um, oh, they were, they were absolutely awful. Um, like, and I couldn't stay with riders who I was infinitely stronger than. So it really, they, they caused uh, a lot of problems. Um, also, I would say that 50% of any suspension system is a matter of just setting it up correctly. You can have a fantastic suspension system, but if it's set up poorly, it's just not going to ride well. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, setting it up is more than just setting the proper sag. It means taking time to have usually someone else, a shop employee or a friend, help you set the other variables like high-speed compression, rebound damping, that sort of thing. Um, and also, you know, with, with some uh, systems, uh, certainly some forks, uh, there are uh, uh, spacers in there, volume spacers that can... Uh, with the addition of additional spacers or removing those spacers can actually change the spring rate uh, of a, of a fork or shock. Um, and Good point. that's something that can be really handy to play with. Um, okay. So the two things that really hurt suspension systems are pedal bob naturally. Um, and the biggest offender of the big manufacturers where this is concerned is Trek. I really don't like their suspension. Um, and that's even after playing with it uh, a bunch. Um, I can't think of anything else I've ridden in the last five years where every time I rolled away from a stop, the saddle just went um, mm. pretty annoying. Um, but, you know, yeah, even... Even theirs is a lot better than what I was riding, say, uh, eight or nine years ago. Um, the other big problem you get is brake jack, and that is having the suspension system get firm because of the torque caused by braking forces. Um, this isn't nearly the problem that it once was, uh, but it can still be an issue. I Every now and then I'll get on a bike and I'll be kind of surprised by how the bike gets stiff the moment I hit the rear brake. And, you know, that causes uh, you to lose traction. 
um, you know, which hurts control. Um, okay. But now <laughs> on to what it is I do like. Um, my absolute go-to, and it's, it's sort of silly what a, um, just kind of a knee jerk reaction is to this question I have, but my absolute go-to is the DW link system. Uh, it was designed and patented, uh, by suspension savant, Dave Weagle. The system uses a virtual pivot point and anti-squat to create a system that really doesn't bob under pedaling and remains very active under braking. Um, so, I mean, here's, here's one way I can put how much I like it. Right now, I'm riding a Pivot Mach 429 with Fox's new live valve suspension that electronically locks out the suspension under certain circumstances. Um, Pivot is one of DW Link's licensees, and I can say that this bike pedals so well that the live valve isn't actually necessary. The, where where yeah. live valve and you know I'll I'll do a separate poll on live valve on yeah some we're looking future, forward to that yeah yep. some future show. <laughs> the reason to have live valve at all really is for those occasions where you get out of the saddle, uh, you're coming over the top of a climb and you want to get out of the saddle and uh, really make a, a bigger effort. Um, or uh, sometimes on climbing, you know, really having the, the suspension fully locked out, even if you are seated, can be nice. A little uh, extra efficiency that way. But this system is so good that there have been days where I've been out so long that I killed the battery for the live valve. Like I was on my second or third ride. And so the battery would just die. It would turn off and I would be riding for a while before I realized, oh, the live valve isn't doing anything anymore uh, because that's, <laughs> and you didn't miss it. Yeah. That's how well it pedals. Um, mm -hmm. There have been days where I knew I was starting out on some rougher terrain and I thought, well, I just won't turn on the live valve till later. My very last mountain bike ride. That was the case. I'll, I'll just turn it on later. <laughs> I never turned it on. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, so and, you know, I don't mean for that to sound like any sort of knock against live valve. Um, <laughs> really, it's just a statement to how well DW Link works. Um, and so that suspension system is, uh, as I mentioned, licensed to pivot. It's also licensed to Ibis, Turner, Iron Horse, and even independent fabrication. Um, <laughs> and I'll say that. I think the very best recommendation I can give for how good DW link is, is to point out that the Ibis Ripmo features 145 millimeters of suspension travel in the rear. You know, that's, I mean, it's a long travel 29er. That's a whole lot of that's movement. Lot of yeah. And that bike pedals so well that I rarely turn on the pro pedal switch on the Fox shock. Um, I spend to explain to people who don't know what the pro pedal switch is. Well, you know, that firms up the, the suspension so that as you're pedaling, you, it will reduce, reduce any amount of Bob that you're getting. That was the whole mm -hmm. point is, yeah. is to just kind of clamp down on that system. Um, I, uh, I spent some time when I first got on that bike, uh, because there wasn't a switch for it. I took time to practice you know, taking my hand off the bar and reaching down to turn it so that I knew uh, I had good muscle memory for what that move was, where to put my hand so that it would be yep. right on 
it's, it's a dial, not really a switch. Um, and so I got really good at that. But what I finally realized is that if I, if I'm pedaling at all smoothly, if I'm not just pedaling absolute boxes, that suspension is super smooth and I really don't have to reach down and turn it on. Um, and I mean, you know, I've been on 120 millimeter bikes that didn't pedal as well as this 145 bike. It's that good. Um, other suspension systems. I'm a big fan of Scott's twin lock suspension system. The fashionable criticism of that system is to knock, well, to knock any system really that uses fancy valving to make the suspension work better. And I, I get that, you know, you ought to have, ideally speaking, the shock wide open um, and, you know, not need to do anything else. But suspension for bicycles is incredibly complicated, uh, way more complicated than you get in cars or motorcycles or anything else. They can always just add more horsepower if something gets less, less efficient. Um, but we have to keep things light on bikes. Uh, so it really has to work well. What Twinlock does is it combines, uh, combines fancy valving with a terrific switch to yield a system that I think results in a bike that works super well. The switch features two small levers uh, that result in three possible settings. What Scott refers to as descend, where it's wide open. And then the second one, kind of a midpoint, they call traction and then locked out which generally speaking is not completely locked out, but reduced to say 10 or 20 millimeters of travel, depending on which of their bikes you're talking about. And that's just because uh, it can be bad for the seals. If you actually do take a hit and it's completely locked out, you don't want to blow a seal. Um, With Scott's genius, the, the descend position these days is 150 millimeters of travel. At traction mode limits that travel to 100 millimeters, uh, making it much more like a cross-country bike in that regard. And then um, also the valving, the way the switch changes the valving in, in the shock, it raises the bottom bracket by five millimeters. Uh, and that increase, increases pedal clearance. So you're much less likely to get rock strikes uh, and that sort of thing. All right. It would be, I think, pretty easy to wonder just how smart a design that does that is. But for me, the proof is that I've noticed that some of my PRs, both going downhill as well as uphill in Anadel, were set on a Genius with 135 millimeters of travel. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess one could expect that for the descent on a technical descent. Well, I mean, here's the thing. So. So I've ridden 100 millimeter bikes in Anadol. Um, the pivot I'm on is a 124, 100 millimeters rear. There were the canyons that I reviewed that were 100 front and rear. There's, yes, the Scott Genius that I rode. It, back then it was, a, I think, a 145 fork and 135 rear. Um, whereas these days it's 150 front and rear. That's how good it is. And then there's the Ripmo. I mean, there have been other bikes, but, you know, the other end of this spectrum is the Ripmo with a 160 fork, 145 rear. And you would think everything that's really gnarly, I would have reset the PR on the Ripmo. And then everything that's smoother and more technical, where it's a matter of handling around tight turns, I would have reset that with the pivot. That hasn't happened. 
there are still old PRs out there set on the genius. And every now and I do a section and I look and it's like, really? I'm still three seconds slower than what I did on the genius. So uh-huh. interesting. It's a, it's a surprise, but I think that's a, a really good testament to why that system is well worth considering. The <laughs> other big system that I want to call out is that from Evil Bikes. And again, this is a suspension system that was designed by Dave Weagle. Um, and it's just universally hailed as an incredible system. I have yet to get to ride an evil. Um, they don't send out a lot of bikes, um, you know, but I know from those who have ridden them like TCI's editor in chief, Mike Cushenberry, that the suspension system is super active without bobbing as you pedal or, you know, getting brake jack. Um, I will say that specialized continues to do really great work as well. Uh, I have long liked how their bikes have pedaled, um, you know, eight, nine years ago, I, there wasn't much that I liked as well as specialized. Um, uh-huh. but certainly, yeah, you know, now with DW link, it's, um, that's really, I think the, the, the state of the art in terms of suspension design. Yeah. One other bike that I want to mention because I'm still dying to, uh, to ride it. Um, but I, everything I've seen on paper, I've been very, very interested about is the seven Mobius, which was introduced, what, almost two years ago now. Uh, yep. No, three, three. Has it been three, three years? Time flies. Yeah, it was. Well, it was yeah. NABs in Hartford where I first got to see it. And so it was, that would have been 2019, right? 2018. 18. Yeah, three years. 2018. Yeah, coming up. Okay. On, yeah. yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. Right, November. <laughs> uh, anyway, yes. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Part of what makes that uh, that bike really interesting is that it's a variation or shall we say an evolution of a design that seven's been working with for a while. They call it virtual pivot track, um, but it's based on design work that seven originally did with. Let's say it together. Dave Weagle. Um, None other than. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and so, you know, I can see how it differs from DW link. Um, it's still kind of classic single pivot design. Um, but it's, it's a really interesting looking bike. Um, and I, yeah, yeah, I have the suspension that, uh, suspicion that it pedals pretty well, but one of these days I am determined to get on one. Yeah. I hope, I hope you can. Yeah. Feedback from our riders has been really good. It's been very strong feedback. And then obviously from people who've ridden everything such Mm -hmm. as yourself. So yes, it will be great to get you on that bike. Yeah, I I may have to talk to that Rob Vandermark guy. Uh, <laughs> you're on pretty good terms with him, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I may be. Yeah, <laughs> that's one thing. We don't have bikes floating around. We do have some demo bikes. Mm. So yes, mm. to get them here or you here or them there. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, yep. I'm I'm game. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, nice. I'm curious about your experience in writing other stuff other than what you sell. Is there anything out there that you are enamored of? Oh, this is this is an interesting one, because once you get into the bike world, it is very difficult to get on another bike Mm. Um, for for the reasons of time. And simply, I would not go to a retailer and waste anyone's time uh, because I'm in the bike business. So um, I, I would really not want someone to do that with me for just the purposes of time. There's so little time 
to be had. Um, I have demo ridden bikes. I've ridden bikes in the past, but no, my, my current experience on bikes is, is what I sell. And I think my biggest source of feedback is really the best source there is. And that's our demo riders because we demo ride out. Almost everyone who buys a bike from us has demo ridden everything. Mm -hmm. Um, Very, very rarely. And we certainly have customers who now come to us first who don't want to just spend the time to go find anything else because they like what we sell. But I get a lot of feedback from people from the outside world. Mm -hmm. And and I know what they're looking for. And we have a lot of really frank conversations. Well, what did you like about that other bike that you demo rode? Okay, that's great to know. Now, the the beauty is seven cycles almost always can say yes. So if someone likes this feature about another bike, well, we can incorporate that in the bike for you because it hasn't been built yet. (laughs) So that helps facilitate that conversation because it's not a, oh, well, this demo bike wasn't everything I wanted, so I'm just going to walk away. Well, it's like, well, that demo bike wasn't perfect for you. Tell us the what you want to feel. And then your bike will have that included. And seven nails it every single time. I mean, we base our bikes on on faith, on trust, mm-hmm. and and we live up to that. And we do that by way of seven. Obviously, seven's the ones who are doing the design work, and and I simply am the communication mechanism between rider and that feedback from from demos to to the bike. So I I really like that. People tell me all about what they have just ridden. Um, and, and their experiences on these other bikes. So, so that's where, that's where I hear what's going on in the world. Very cool. Yeah. Oh, alrighty. Well, let's move on to Paceline Picks. What's yours this week? All right. Well, I've, I've done a lot of talking in this episode today, so I'm going to make this short and sweet. Okay. This is good for everyone. And that is the 365 brand hot cocoa individual packages that you can buy <laughs> at Whole Foods. It, Trader Joe's has a similar variation on the theme. I cannot find reasonable ingredients in your average grocery store's individual packages of hot cocoa, like Swiss Mix. I don't like the ingredients. I mean, I really am a believer in natural foods and where you can you know every ingredient mm-hmm. on the, the ingredient list. So having hot chocolate during a ride, obviously it saved my life, changed my world, all these other good things during the fat pursuit. But I have used these little individual ha- packages when I do a group ride. Like I met up with a group of friends uh, a few weeks ago. We did a great fat bike ride in the snow at the end of the ride. I had water in one hand, hot water, because hey, bring hot water with you. And a bunch of these packages and everybody took a package, dumped it into their water bottle. I distributed the hot water. Everyone had some and everyone was very happy. <laughs> that feels good. It just hits the spot. It goes straight to your muscles. It, it's it's quick recovery. Uh, like it's it's all those good things. So, yeah, I think I think you should have these on you. I keep some at home. They're all over the place. They're at both of the bike shops. And they just come in handy all the time. Unfortunately, at both bike shops, we have instant hot water. So we have a tank that always has hot water that just uh-huh. pours hot. That That's also really nice to have. Like you're a rider, you're out cold, put boiling hot water in your bottle. It's going to be good. It's, it's the spot. You make friends <laughs> and you feel good. I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's my pick. 
What about yours? Well, it's funny because mine's sort of related to what yours is. And it's oh. it's humorous to me because we weren't coordinating this ahead of time. We did not coordinate this. <laughs> but I, I'm not going to talk about... Uh, Okay, we know it's not winter here. It claims to be, but uh, still, it's been colder, and I've been doing more rides where the temperature may not actually get out of the 40s, you know, during the course of my ride. And I'm not big on drinking something cold when it's cold. So I do like putting something warm in my bottles to keep that something warm, actually warm. Uh, my go to bottles are Camelback's Podium Chill Bottles. Um, and on gravel rides, I especially like their Podium Dirt Series chill bottles, which have the little rubber cap to, uh, to keep dirt out of the nozzle. Um, I've used a number of different insulated bottles over the years, and I have to say the Camelback Chills do a better job of keeping the hot liquids hot or at least warm-ish. Um, I have been warmed by the folks at Camelback not to put anything hotter than 168 165 degrees Fahrenheit in the bottles because it will cause them to warp and delaminate. Um, I, you know, I just, I'm not great at like uh, making sure about that temperature, but I just don't go to a full boil and they've been fine. Uh, uh, as for the what to put in them, I'm pretty partial to Scratch Labs uh, matcha and green tea mix. Um, and there's a, uh, they're apples, apples and cinnamon, um, which they do. Uh, it used to be a regular part of their mix. Now they'll do occasional runs of it in the fall or winter, and I'll order a couple bags then. Um, yeah, the apples and cinnamon, you know, it's like having spiced cider. And I just. It's good. Yeah. yeah. It's funny it's how when spot. I taste it now, my brain goes to, oh, yeah, that was an epic day. Oh, that was an epic day. Oh, that was an epic day. <laughs> Just, uh-huh. I, I I need to like start using that stuff more on like nicer days so that I don't get this immediate <laughs> visceral reaction of like, oh, you are about to suffer. <laughs> right. Right. When it tastes so good too, it's attempting to calm and warm and comfort you. <laughs> yeah. I I need to like blot out some of those memories of oh my gosh, that was ugly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um yeah, so <clears throat> Let's see. Um, one thing I will say is the colder it is, the stiffer that bottle is, but the spout is sizable and the intake, uh, you know, in the in the bottom of the cap is really significant. And should a science project colonize said cap, there's not an easier cap to get clean. It can be completely disassembled. Uh, and so you can actually get stuff right on the valve um, and each of the little components. Uh, very easy to get that bottle clean. So oh, good feature. The 21 ounce podium dirt series chill goes for $17. I know that's a lot for a bottle, but uh, the pair that I have in my kitchen right now is on their third season. So they hold up just yeah. fine. Yeah. And you're not likely to be losing these bottles. It's not like the type of bottle you're going to be racing with. So it's less likely to be lost into the wilderness, or the feed zone or anything like that. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to toss them, but, I mean, they have seen their share of grasshoppers. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So they should be lucky they're still in your possession. Uh, I just, well, I use good cages. Uh, remember the, yeah. the your previous pick of king cages? I, that I 
do. That's right. Yep. That's Having a, good cages is, is really important. Yeah. Yep. If you're going to buy a nice bottle, buy a nice cage, keep the nice bottle. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ah, well, that's a wrap on another episode of the pace line. Keep the questions coming. This is fun stuff. Uh, I certainly enjoyed answering today's. If you've got an idea, please drop by the cycling independent and put a suggestion in the comments. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes us easier for other listeners to find until next week. I'm Patrick Brady with Patria Vandermark. Thanks for listening to the pace line.